we'll begin tonight considering the addresses to the seven churches. We usually call them the letters to the seven churches, but I'm going to use the word addresses because I want us to keep in mind that the book of Revelation as a whole is one letter. It was written as an encyclical to these seven churches. And that means that each of the seven churches would also see the commendations and the admonitions that Christ gives all of the seven churches. Because remember, these seven churches represent the big C universal church as well as individual small C churches throughout the ages. Now, there's not quite as much symbolism here in the addresses as there is once John's vision brings him to heaven in chapter 4, but there is some. However, the point of the addresses to the seven churches is that it reveals what churches should and should not be doing in these end times as we await the return of Christ. They're meant to be especially practical for churches of all time, so they are especially practical for us. And so we begin with the address to the church in Ephesus, where we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, uh, to begin, I'm going to repeat some of what I said two weeks ago when we did an introductory overview of the book of Revelation. I said, very simply, the book of Revelation tells the same basic story revealed in a vision in seven cycles. It is the time between Christ's first coming and the consummation of our salvation when he returns. However, there is a different focus each time. And this chapter, chapter 2, begins the first cycle. The letters or the addresses to the seven churches. And the focus is the practical doctrine and works of the church as we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm also, to refresh our memories, going to repeat what I said about these addresses. Christ gives rebukes and encouragements to these churches. And while there are actual historical churches that existed in the first century, the seven churches represent Christians and churches of all time from his first advent to his second. So this cycle is directed towards the church as the church. Jesus exhorts, corrects, and rebukes his church. He commends the church to continue where she is right and graciously offers a chance for repentance and correction where she is going wrong. And this section uses the word tribulation more than the rest of the book. In fact, the word is only used once outside of the seven addresses because it is the tribulation the church is facing and would face that is the subject of the whole book. But also emphasized in these seven letters is the fact that Christ is with these churches in their very midst, and that reliance on him and obedience to him would be how the church perseveres. So that's what we can expect to see as we go through each of these seven addresses. And we'll see that each address follows a basic formula with only slight variation in order. We'll see, one, that Christ commands John to write to the church, establishing the address as the very words of God. Two, Christ describes himself. Very often, one of the ways that John described him in chapter 1, and usually having to do with the subject matter of each address. Three, he commends the church for their good works. Four, he makes any accusations of sin and rebukes the church. Five, he exhorts the church to repent. 
Six, he exhorts the church to properly discern what he has said. And seven, he makes a promise to every and any church that heeds his words. And you'll notice that after addressing the people of the church and the whole church, he always opens it up to all churches. He even says he's speaking to all churches. Each and every time, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, these churches, remember, represent all churches, and these Christians, all Christians. So with that in mind, we begin with the address to the Ephesian church, which begins very simply, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So he's addressing the church and the Christians in Ephesus first. As we saw, this is likely because of the geography of the church as he addresses. Ephesus was a port city on the western side of Asia Minor. It's where the letter would have landed first. But there were other churches in Asia Minor aside from these seven churches. So I believe there's a reason God chose each of these seven churches. So why Ephesus? Well, Ephesus played a huge role in the beginning of Christian churches outside of Jerusalem. It was also a huge part of Paul's ministry. It was a central point in his journeys and the place that he spent, if you read the book of Acts, the place he spent most of his time. So it seems almost natural that the addresses would begin with the Ephesian church. And because of its location and the fact that it was a port city, Ephesus saw many people passing through from other Mediterranean countries. So it had a great influence on importing culture into the region. And Ephesus was also notoriously pagan. It was the seat of Diana worship, or of the Greek gods Artemis. And we know this from extra-biblical sources, but we also know that from the Bible itself in the Book of Acts. So right smack dab in the middle of this, all the tourism, all the worldly culture, all the idol worship, was this church. And I remember what we saw last week, actually where we ended last week. The stars and the angels represent Christians, and the lampstands represent churches. And we'll see that Christ is addressing both, Christians individually and churches collectively. Which is why he says next, he says, To the angel of a church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So when Jesus starts these addresses with this, to the angel of a church write, and gives this description, this is basically the thus says the Lord of sorts. Right? What John is to write are the words of Christ himself, and he repeats his command to John to write to each of the seven churches in turn. And notice how he describes himself here. He holds, he says, the seven stars in his right hand. Now, these are the elect of all ages, every Christian. And he also walks among the seven golden lampstands, which is the universal church, but also every individual local church. And the gold of the lampstands is meant to represent purity. That's what gold represents very often in the Bible. It's purity. So Jesus is present with every pure church or each true Church. In other words, he is not among the false churches, of which there are many, but only the true, pure churches. And as we will see, pure does not mean perfect. Not by a long shot. I mean, some of these churches are doing a lot wrong, but yet because of their faith, because of their purity of faith, Christ is among them despite their shortcomings. And this is meant to be an encouragement, even to those churches who are going through tribulation, and even those that are faltering doctrinally or in their actions. But also notice that the people in the church are the same. Let's not miss that. See, the Bible teaches that the church and the people who make up the church are one and the same. There is not a church as in an organization or a collection of a few leaders and then the people who make up the congregation. No, we are all together the church. Montclair Community Church is made up of people. And here we see that in the way that both are being addressed at one and the same time. There are seven churches, which are seven lampstands, seven stars, which are seven angels. They're all the same in the end, the fullness of all the people who make up the church of all time. 
Now, why did Jesus choose this description of himself for the Ephesian church? He says, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, we're going to see in the addresses to these churches that the descriptions Christ uses of himself appear to be in some way pertinent to the message that he has for each of those churches. Here, Christ is emphasizing his presence among them. He's telling them not only is he with them, but he is with and among them in a very real and very special way. Now, as we saw, emphasis played a very important role in the early church. And we're going to see, based on the encouragements that he gives them and the admonitions that he has for them, that Ephesus was doing a lot right because they were aware of him and his presence among them. They were discerning of his leading them as a church. And church history will tell us this church in Ephesus remained faithful and vigilant in the face of not only false teaching, but persecution well into the second century. So note this. A church that is very aware of Christ's presence will follow his will, and a church that follows Christ's will will be very aware of his presence. Let me say that again. A church that is very aware of Christ's presence will follow his will, and a church that follows Christ's will will be very aware of his presence. And the church in Ephesus was very aware of his presence, which is why he starts his commendation the way he does. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. All right, I know your works, he starts off with. Now, there are a whole slew of words in Greek that can be translated as no in the New Testament. The word here is the most common, but the word often indicates a, indicates a very intimate knowledge. It is the word that the Septuagint of the Greek Old Testament uses in place of the Hebrew word yadat, which is a word used to indicate, among other kinds of knowledge, sexual knowledge, as in Adam knew his wife. See, this is an intimate knowledge being spoken of here. Christ knew the church in Ephesus intimately because he was present with them and because of their obedience to his will. And he shows what this obedience looked like for them by using three words. He says works, toil, and patient endurance. But he makes it more specific than that here. He repeats all three times the possessive pronoun your. He doesn't just say, hey, Ephesus, I know your works, toil, and patient endurance. He says, no, I know your work. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. And in all three cases, the your is singular, indicating he's addressing the church as one here. And this is quite a commendation. Now, the term works is just a general term. It means an action, an action somebody takes, something somebody does. But the word toil, it means a very taxing activity. See, Christ is not just commending the, the church for doing their works. He's commending this church for doing the hard things. They did what was right even when it wasn't easy. They did what was right even when it was very costly. But he also knows their patient endurance. They have this patient endurance. And, and the word here is just one word in Greek. It appears seven times in the book of Revelation, four times in the addresses to the churches, once in the introduction. Let's go back to chapter 1 for a second because we saw this word in the introduction. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Remember what we said when we looked at this. This patient endurance is found in Jesus. In Jesus alone, who earned our salvation through his patient endurance. This church in Ephesus found their patient endurance in Christ as did the other churches. 
But the other two times this word is used, it talks specifically about the preservation of the saints and the perseverance of the saints through horrible tribulation. Revelation 13, we're going to see. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of faith in the saints. The same word there. And this is one of my favorite passages in the entire book, and we'll get the full treatment of it when we get there in like 2025. But the word here for endurance is the same word translated as patient endurance in the address of a church in Ephesus. And the word refers to our calling to endure the tribulation that the world brings upon us as the church in the present age. And the church in Ephesus was enduring in that way. It's also used in Revelation 14. We read, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And again, we'll get there, but in context, this is talking about the mark of the beast. This is the call to the church to not take the mark of the beast, but instead to remain obedient to God by faith. So the Ephesian church, already being persecuted for their faith, already being tempted to abandon their faith and conform to the world, instead they kept their patient endurance by being obedient to Jesus. Back to verse 2. Christ says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So just like Christ intimately knew their works, knew their toil, knew their patient endurance because he was there among them, he knew how they could not bear with those who were evil. And specifically here, these evil people were men who falsely claimed to be apostles, but whom the Ephesian church rightly determined were not. Now, how did they determine this? Well, if any of you were here and remember our, our sermon series on Sunday mornings at 1 John a few years back, I remember what it was, you might remember two things. Number one, that the letter of 1 John was an encyclical letter written to the churches of Asia Minor, just the book of Revelation. And the first stop of that letter very likely would have been Ephesus, where history tells us the Apostle John, who wrote that letter, ministered later in his life. And second, you may remember, you may remember a sermon on this, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the Ephesian church, having received this letter from the Apostle John, not that long before the, the letter of Revelation, is told, hey, you're doing this. You are testing the spirits. They were comparing the teaching of these so-called apostles with the witness of the scriptures. The doctrines about Christ from these so-called apostles with what they already knew to be true about Christ. They could discern truth from error that way, and Christ is commending that in them. These so-called apostles proved they were false by teaching lies about Jesus, and in particular, John says the test is whether or not they confess that Christ has come in the flesh. And the Ephesian church was careful to test these men and their teaching. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And then Christ brings them back to their faith in him and their obedience in him. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. See, what they did, they did for the sake of Christ. And notice the wording here, that enduring patiently is the same word we just looked at a minute ago, and that bearing up is the same word for bear we saw in verse 2, where they could not bear with the false teaching. In other words, Christ is telling them that he not only intimately knew what they did, their work, their toil, their endurance, their testing, the teaching of men, he says he knows why they do it. So this is about the action and the heart behind the actions. And note, Christ commends them for both here. Because yes, God cares very much about the heart. And the heart behind the action is what counts, but there needs to be action. Christ is commending them for believing and doing. And they have done this, and they have not grown weary in doing this for his sake. Like the author of the Hebrews said, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is a call to the same patient endurance that is found in Christ. When the church endures for Christ's sake, the church can endure anything. When we collectively keep our eyes on him who endured from sinners hostility to the point of death, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. And Christ is commending the Ephesian church for this kind of patient endurance, for this kind of perseverance for his sake. And then we get to the admonishment. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. He admonishes them. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, what is the love he's referring to that they've abandoned here? Well, some commentators say, well, their love for Christ has waned throughout the years. But based on the commendation, that hardly seems possible to me. Their patient endurance and their bearing up through persecution was done for Christ's sake. Some will say this is love for each other. Their love for each other wasn't what it once was, but they have, that they have grown cold towards each other. But Christ has already approved of both their actions and their hearts as a church, so I don't think that's it either. What he's talking about is their love for the world. Not of the world. Love for the world. Not love of the ways of the world. Love for the people of the world. This is about their love for the lost. Let's go back to the Olivet Discourse for a moment here. There's a lot of parallels between that and what we find in the book of Revelation. Go to Matthew 24. Jesus says this. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, notice the parallels between what he says here and what he's saying to the Ephesian church. Here he's talking about the false prophets that will arise to lead people away from the truth. And then he commends the Ephesians for standing fast in the truth, not tolerating false teaching. He says the love of Betty will grow cold. And he tells the Ephesians, hey, you've lost a particular aspect of your love that you used to have. He says here that those who endure, and guess what word he uses here? It's the same word. It's the verb form of that same word, patient endurance, in the book of Revelation. Christ says that those who endure in this way to the end will be saved, and he commends the Ephesian church for their endurance. And then, Jesus here ties in this endurance with the proclamation of the gospel. 
It is the result of this endurance. Through endurance, he says, we are saved and the gospel will go throughout the whole world. And this, I believe, is what the Ephesian Christians were missing. They, as a church, have stopped reaching outward. Remember, like all Christians, we saw this in chapter 1, like all Christians, they are supposed to be the angels, right? They are the messengers set to bring the good news of the gospel to the world. They are the stars. And we, as we saw in the book of Daniel, the stars are those who turn many to righteousness. This is what the church in Ephesus was not doing. In their eagerness to maintain that purity as a church that they were called to, they wound up cutting themselves off from the outside world. They were so concerned with what was going on within that they stopped reaching out. And think about it. At the time of this writing, this church is made up of second and probably even some third generation Christians. This church had expanded in the first generation almost unbelievably, but here they were. This is 60 years after Christ ascended. The church was started a little over 40 years before the writing of this letter. By the time they got this letter, Peter and Paul had both been dead for almost 30 years. And the zeal for the loss the first generation had, it just wasn't there, as tends to happen. Second generation churches tend to lose momentum in some of their original zeal. You see that story all the time in churches. As the second generation pastor here, as it were, I take this very seriously. Because you know what? Inertia is a great enemy of church growth. Inertia is a great enemy of outreach to the world, and it usually sets in once the first generation is out of the church. And let's be honest, we know this is the tendency of churches. Even good, God-fearing, Jesus-loving churches, the tendency is to always move inward, to focus on the community of faith within the church and what we do in here, to focus on the inward of each Christian and how they grow, usually at the expense of the outward mission we're called to. What tendency has always existed? It existed in Ephesus in 95 AD. And now, at that time this book was written, there were intense persecutions against Christians. Being a Christian was literally dangerous to the point of death in some cases. I can understand why a church would move inwardly and lose their desire to reach outward, can't you? And that's what this church was doing. So, again, Christ commends the Ephesian church, in my opinion, for their love for him. He commends them for the love for the church itself as in the love they have for each other, but admonishes them for the lack of love for the world. He's telling them despite the hatred of the world for them, and because of the lies that were being perpetuated by false teachers, they need to recover that love for the world to continue carrying out the Great Commission. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So here's that opportunity for repentance that Christ offers each church that he, he calls out sin on. And these seven churches in every church have that chance to repent. And this is why pure, when I talk about a pure church, it doesn't mean perfect. You don't want me pastoring a perfect church, I'll mess it up. Please trust me. So here, Christ first calls them to remember what they once were. Okay, it's a present imperative verb, and that means that it's a command to do something continually. He's saying continually remember what you once were and are supposed to be. Remember it and don't forget it. And then he tells them to repent, to change their minds on the matter. It's a command for a one-time action. Repent once, remember always. So he commands them to remember, but then he commands them to do, because there has to be action in repentance. 
There's a change of mind and a change of action. Now he calls them to do the works they did at first. And we see here that the love they lost resulted in this lack of works. The love they had at first produced the works they did at first. And we actually know what the works of the Ephesian church were at first. Because we read of a spiritual awakening of the people of Ephesus, of their zeal for Christ in the book of Acts. They all renounce their pagan beliefs. Remember, they start burning all their, their magic books. And we read this in Acts 19. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This was at the church in Ephesus. As I said, the Ephesian church, it was key in spreading the gospel to Gentile nations. Jesus here is calling them back to this. And as I said, notice how serious a matter this is. Christ tells them, if you do not repent, if you do not regain that love and restart that work, that he was going to come and remove their lampstand from its place. And we'll see, he doesn't threaten every church with this. So he finds what they were lacking here extremely important. Because remember, the lampstands are the churches. And Jesus dwells among the lampstands. He dwells in every pure or true church. And he's telling them, hey, if you do not restart these works and regain that love, well, you will cease to be a church. And he will remove, he will remove his presence from among them. In other words, a church that does not love the world and bring the gospel to the lost, Jesus is saying, that is not a true church. Because a lampstand that doesn't give off light is not a true lampstand. Remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, you, in the plural, are the light, singular light of the world. Christians collectively are the unique and only light that God shines into the world. And this is what the Ephesian church was lacking, bringing God to the world. And think about all the good things this church was doing. Think of all the things that were right with this church. But for this one reason, because they had become so inward focused, they completely lost their focus outward, Jesus says, you could cease to be a church because of this. He says, you are not going to be a church for very much longer if you are not a great commissioned church. And I think we in every church should take this very seriously. Then Jesus does that whole compliment sandwich thing that you're taught to do as a manager, right? He commended them and rebuked them, now he commends them again. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It will be seen, the Ephesian church was called to love the lost, to love what Jesus loves. And he recommends them for hating what he hates. And the word hate here is a very strong word. The word here is not just like a dislike. It's not something you just sooner avoid than not. It means to utterly detest something. Christ hated the works, detested the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we'll see later in the address of a church in Pergamum, it was both the actions and the doctrine of his group that Christ was against. So who were they? Who were the Nicolaitans and what did they believe and what did they do? Well, unfortunately, nobody knows for sure. But there are two primary schools of thought here. The word Nicolaitan is just a transliteration of the Greek word used here. It's a compound word for from two words. The word nikos, which means victory, and the word laos, which means people. That's where we get our word laity. You can see it in the name Nicolaitan. And the word means someone who is victorious over the laity, or someone victorious over the people. And there are some who say this is a group who sought to exalt themselves as the clergy above the laity. Probably had some Gnostic influence in there, and they raised the teachers above the rest of the people. 
And I fully agree the Bible teaches against this, and maybe that's who they were. There's another school of thought, this is the most popular school of thought, and this is based on the writings of Irenaeus and Hippolytus in the second century. They were church leaders and theologians of the second century. They write of a group called the Nicolaitans who followed the doctrines and practices of a heretic named Nicholas. So who was Nicholas? Well, let's go back further in church history. Acts 6, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Now there was in the second century, as I said, a heresy in the church by a group who claimed to be followers of Nicolaus of Antioch, one of the original seven deacons of the church. As the story goes, he came from a pagan background and converted to Judaism, which the book of Acts confirms, says he was a proselyte from Antioch. Not a, an Israelite, he converted to Judaism. And having pagan roots, he would have had experience in the occult and worship of idols and things like that. So he converts to Judaism. But we know that since he was one of the original deacons, that means, as they say, he converted a second time to Christianity. And you can see a willingness to abandon previous beliefs and accept new ones. Well, according to the writings of the second century, Nicolaus later in life taught a doctrine of compromise, or what we would call syncretism. It's just the Greek verb to, to combine. It means that he taught that Christianity could be combined with other religions and still be a good form of Christianity. He allegedly taught it was okay to practice Christianity and incorporate elements of ceremonial Judaism and even paganism. So he combined all of his previous religions together. And as we know from the book of Acts, Ephesus was a hotbed of paganism. It's where the temple of Diana was. It's where many of the people stood against Paul and the gospel. So Christ could be here referring to this same group and commending the Ephesians for not allowing the world to influence them. See, he could be again commending them for staying pure in their worship of God. So they are commended for not being influenced themselves by the world, but being rebuked for not themselves being an influence in the world. So, bring it all together. Christ is saying the Ephesian church was strong doctrinally, strong as a community, but lacked love for the lost and lacked action to save the lost. They were a great church within the church. They loved the truth, they loved Christ, they loved each other, but they became too inward focused. They should be in the world shining the light of Christ, especially in the face of all the lies the world was perpetuating, lies they themselves hated. And then Christ finishes the address with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we see this, he who has an ear, let him hear. Christ used this in his first advent. Jesus would say this, you can read it in the Gospels, exclusively and only after a parable or some other symbolic teaching. Jesus said it when he said that Elijah had already come, referring to John the Baptist, after the parable of the sower, when he talks about salt that loses its taste. The point is, Christ only used it in his earthly life when he was speaking completely symbolically, and only those with ears to hear understood, which is why he spoke symbolically. So for those with ears to hear, with minds and hearts opened by God to understand the truth, we need to hear what this address really says. Christ is addressing the Ephesian church circa 95 AD, but the Spirit 
who works through the word of God, he makes this for every church of all time. The Spirit is speaking to every church and every Christian here. The Ephesian church is a symbol of all churches. And we see here that there's a call to action for the churches and a promise. The call to action is to heed what has been said and to conquer. And the word conquer is the same word that we saw as part of the word Nicolaitan here. It's a play on words, possibly, because there's a correlation being drawn. He's saying, rather than, be, rather than being conquered by the works of the world, we are to conquer the world for Christ through our works. I'll say that again. Rather than being conquered by the works of the world, we are to conquer the world for Christ through our works. And for the one who conquers, Christ promises that we can eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life is a reference back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were able to eat all the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the trees they could eat from would include the tree of life. But when they were banished from the garden, they lost access to the tree of life, which meant, as God promised, because of sin, they would now surely die. Well, here, Christ is promising access to the tree again in the paradise of God. But the paradise isn't Eden. The paradise is what Eden pointed to. It is the presence of God. See, this word for paradise is used only three times in the whole Bible. Here, in Luke 23, where Jesus addresses the believing uh, thief from the cross, he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And in 2 Corinthians we see it, where Paul describes a vision given to him by God. He says, and I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So the thief died and was in the presence of God that very day. Paul's vision brought him to heaven into the presence of God. And here, Christ is talking about the eternal presence of God. That is paradise. So Christ is saying to those who conquer, those who are not overcome by the ways of the world, but shine the light of Christ into the world, they will receive eternal life in the presence of God. We'll see this again at the end of the book, where John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth is described, and we read, to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And a little later, within the symbolic description of a new Jerusalem, where the river of water of life is flowing, we read, it was flowing through the middle of a street of a city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of a tree were for the healing of the nations. And this, the readers would understand, is a callback to the prophecy of Ezekiel. In another apocalyptic portion of scripture, Ezekiel's given a vision of a new temple from which a river flows, and we read this, and on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. The leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, that's the 12 kinds of fruit. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, where the presence of God is, the fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And we'll see when we get to the end of Revelation, we'll, cut, we'll go back to this, we'll see Ezekiel's temple is an apocalyptic symbol of Christ himself, which is what Christ is promising when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of a tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words... Christ is promising every church, every Christian, us, to this sure end, if we are faithful to our calling in the Great Commission. He says we will live forever, and we will be with him forever. And that is the paradise, brothers and sisters, that we can look forward to. Amen? Amen.